Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Changing the Climate, a show where we talk about the changing world around us and how we can make it better. Brought to you by Climate Change Realty. The only real estate brokerage that donates 50% of its net commissions to 501c3 nonprofit organizations dedicated to fighting climate change. Kevin, so nice to meet you, man. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, it means the world to me. Thanks, Ethan. Thank you very much for the invitation and uh, very excited about it. Yeah, my pleasure, man. Uh, we're going to get into some uh, nerdy finance stuff, which I, I happen to like. But uh, before we do, we always love to get it started with a little bit of background on who you are and how you guys be doing what you're doing at the moment. Sure. Well, you know, uh, those who know me well don't you know, know that I, I don't actually like to talk about myself. I love talking about my work, um, but but not not me so much. But obviously, it's it's always nice to know a little bit about the person on the other end of the conversation. Um, so I always I always lead uh, tells you a little bit about who I am and, and where I come from. I always lead in a room uh, if I'm uh, moderating a panel or presenting an idea or something by taking a quick poll because you never know who's in the room with you um and i actually did this uh recently you know with some asset managers you know like like the nerdiest of nerdiest people it's like fiduciaries you know about property and i said so a quick poll uh, i know you're here to talk about you know green buildings things like that but quick poll show of hands is there anybody in the room that doesn't want to breathe clean air yeah, of course, there are no hands. Okay, second question. Is there anybody in the room that doesn't want to drink clean water? No hands. I said, great. So we've agreed on two things now. Let's spend the rest of the time figuring out how to get there. And I do that because, number one, it's a great icebreaker, but it also uh, informs people about who I am. Um, one of my, my influences uh, in my background, uh, I did graduate studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and uh, got a master's degree in urban and regional planning, but specialized in, in real estate finance, believe it or not, which was a, a kind of a, an interactional program uh, with the business school and the law school and the public policy school. And um, one of the, the uh, courses that I took was uh, negotiation. <laughs> And uh, the, the quintessential book, I think still of the time, uh, Getting T.S. by Fisher and Yuri. And I learned this you know, from that class and from this book, which is if you really want to deliver a message to people and you want to influence them, you've got to break down some sort of natural and cultural barriers and societal barriers. And right now we have a lot of barriers in the sort of broader sustainability industry. It means a lot of things, uh, and it means different things to different people, uh, even in the same organization. And we struggle with what that means. So I bring this up because my background is very broad, uh, as, as you, you probably know from, from looking at my bio. But, um, you know, I started in the environmental space. I've always had an affinity toward both the natural and the built environment. Uh, and the interaction of those two and, and how we as human beings exist in that. Um, but I went on, uh, on to study, you know, environmental, you know, we called it 
geography and ecosystems back then. Now it would be called environmental sciences. Um, and while I was in that major, I also exposed myself to uh, a lot of different disciplines that I really didn't have a lot of background in. So I took um, architecture and urban planning and a little bit of finance and kind of got a sense of what some of the other things were out there, uh, the inputs into the natural environment and the built environment. And then I went on uh, to graduate program uh, at, at uh, I did my undergrad at UCLA and went out to the graduate program at North Carolina. Um, urban planning was really interesting to me, um, but I wanted to specialize in more of the business side of urban development. Uh, and so I specialized in this program that was uh, focused on real estate and finance. And I also happened to have a faculty advisor and an internship um, with a gentleman named Mike Stegman, who was previously uh, with HUD uh, and, and was a tenured professor and the chair of the department at the time at, at Chapel Hill. And um, he, he was a housing guy, but he was also a hardcore finance guy. And I kind of got this sense of, you know, finance and housing and policy can all go together. Uh, it's not policy by itself and it's not money by itself. So I got this new appreciation for how all of these disciplines interact and work together and really drive towards solutions. And I am a solutions-based person. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't do policy. Um, policy is interesting. We certainly need it. Uh, and, and I support everyone that works on policy. Uh, but we've seen a lot of policies out there that, that fail because they're not implemented. Uh, there's no execution arm to, to policy. So I saw that there was a, a sort of this absence of execution, people going out and doing and kind of learning as they do, in a sense, making mistakes, um, improving on those mistakes the next time and doing again. And, and it's this virtuous loop of do, make mistakes, improve, do again, do again, do again. And eventually we get there. And I guess that's part of, of kind of who I am, how I'm wired, but it also really um, helped me focus on what sustainability means to me and how I practice it today. Uh, I think sustainability is really all about sustaining human beings. Mm -hmm. uh, the planet doesn't need us. <laughs> the planet's going to win no matter what. Uh, you know, the environment, the ecosystem is the perfect system in nature. It, it already knows what to do. It already knows what to do with us. <laughs> and we can talk about climate change, but at the end of the day, climate and climate change is really about the sustainability of the human species. Um, that's really what we're all about. Um, and so, you know, we have to take care of our home because guess what? Our home protects us uh, and, it, and it enables us to live and to prosper. And that's what sustainability is. Sustainability is continuing to, to sustain ourselves uh, by, by helping, you know, eliminate the problems that we create in our built and, and in the natural environment. Um, Makes sense to so me. I, yeah, so I, I've kind of taken that background and, and done a lot of things in my, my work experience um, 
I've been on the nonprofit side, on the government side, state and local. My first job was actually working for the California Department of Water Resources, <laughs> doing water resource maps back when we didn't have, you know, GIS. It was all hand-drawn maps out in Southern California. Um, I like to say in my, my Caltrans, it's California Department of Transportation, for those folks in California know this, that orange cone colored car, you know, driving around with my maps in hand. Um, worked in, in urban redevelopment and finance, really got an appreciation for finance. I worked in big six consulting um, on, on kind of a real estate and a public finance side, very transactional, but kind of understanding the market dynamics and financial dynamics. Uh, again, worked in public finance, uh, redevelopment bonds, tax increment, things like that. Um, went out on my own as a real estate developer on several occasions. Uh, and so that's what I've done with my career. And, and I've been doing this for you know 30 plus years now. Uh, really just tried to do a lot of things within this built and natural environment space but always focused on solutions. How do I bring these tools, whether it's finance or, or policy, someone else does that better than I do, um, or design, whatever it is, like bring all those tools to the table and then let's focus on a solution. Let's get something done and then figure out if it worked and how we can improve it. Yeah. Wow. Thanks for sharing, man. Uh, makes the sense to me, a, a, a large broad background. Uh, I love the emphasis, of course, that's why I'm choosing to talk to you. Now, I want to dig into something you said a little bit about this hesitancy for um, for execution. And I think that is one of the main issues we're facing now. And I think it will continue to, I don't know, hopefully like peter away. But I, I don't see a, a shortage in supplies of solutions to environmental stewardship, climate action, any of that stuff. I see, like, I think about that, what you said, like a hesitancy to execute, like we're, we're missing the demand. The consumers need to tell people that they really are hungry for this stuff. And when you ask someone, Hey, raise your hand. Do you, do you want clean air and clean water? Everyone's like, yeah, but we need to find a way to like quantify it for people. And that's kind of the stuff that I'm very interested in and why I'm excited to talk to you, I guess is, Creating real incentives for individuals and corporations to create climate action in like marketable ways. So I guess, yeah, I guess to begin just kind of just talking, I want to like, like, how can we, how do you explain to these uh, business minded people, the profit incentive beyond just like the environmental impacts of socially focused ventures? Does that, does that kind of make sense? Sure. So, you know, my point of view on this, I think, you know, maybe unique. I don't, I don't know why it would be unique, but maybe it is. Um, we're already paying for this. You know, we talk about the cost of climate change or, or uh, severe weather events, things like that, uh, drought, uh, all, all of this stuff. And, and people say, well, I, you know, I don't want to pay for that. My answer is you're already paying for it. Uh, you just don't know it because it's internalized. Um, these external costs have already been absorbed by the system. Uh, we're seeing it now. Um, you know, the, the COVID pandemic, the global pandemic caused by a vector, and I'm not going to say it's caused by climate because it's not, but um, we do have vectors now, you know, uh, expanding their reach due to climate. What is a vector? Uh, a vector, a virus or a bacteria or something that, you know, uh, uh, 
something that, that causes a disease, uh, whether it's in humans or other species. Um, but we've seen this in, in you know, animals and trees. I mean, Dutch elm disease, you know, it's pretty much wiped out the original elm species. And we've had to kind of genetically engineer both naturally and in a, in a laboratory new elms to replace them um, that are more resistant. Uh, we have vaccines that, that help us resist vectors all the time. So what we're seeing, though, is, is that the, the economic system that we built, um, not really understanding the potential impact of environmental disasters, and I do Absolutely. consider human health an environmental problem, um, is that our supply chains are, are really being stressed. Um, imagine if you had you know, winter storms, winter freezes like we had last winter in the middle of the country, uh, two or three times a year, and not just in North America, but on every continent, uh, our supply chain, our logistic chain would collapse. We had it last winter. Our food chain, our food supply system pretty much collapsed when the freeze hit Texas and, and the middle of the country. And it's because the system, the infrastructure was not built to withstand that kind of extreme temperature. Um, these literally had trucks of food sitting in warehouse parking lots, unable to move and rotting. And so you couldn't get produce in the Northeast for weeks. Um, you're seeing that now because of COVID, the global supply chain is really stressed and collapsing, uh, you know, as, as the economics kind of ebb and flow. And so that's no different than a climate disaster. <laughs> uh, you know, we have severe storms and we have uh, um, immense rainfall amounts uh, or immense snowfall amounts or drought in the West. Um, you know, California has, has had basically a continual 500 year drought now uh, and they're expecting another one, uh, notwithstanding the fact that they keep getting these um, you know, river storms uh, where it's just dump, dumping, you know, eight inches of rain on the Northern California coast a uh, week and a half ago, but they're still in drought because that rain's coming so fast, it's literally just washing off into streams and rivers and up to the ocean and it's not percolating back into the ground. The West lives on snowpack. It doesn't live on rainfall. Um, and so you're seeing the Colorado Basin, you know, all time droughts, um, historical in terms of human history. So this is all gonna cost us money. It's already costing us money. We're having crops that are dying. We're having farmers that are tearing fields out. We're having uh, uh, developers who are having to source product elsewhere. Our food system is stressed. Um, our human health system is stressed. If people don't think we're paying for that now, with the cost of goods and services and the cost of insurance and the cost of fuel and the cost of repairing infrastructure that continually gets damaged, they're kidding themselves. They're just not paying attention. We are already paying for it. And so, you know, kind of my attitude and my pitch to people in the business world who want to do this is why don't we figure out a way to recapture some of that wasted capital? and do something valuable with it, do something productive with it, because we can. Uh, I like to say, and I truly believe that we have all the ideas we need and we have all the money we need to solve these problems. Absolutely. What we don't have 
is the will to do it. What's up with I that? I think that's I think that's changing. Yeah, I agree. But like, yeah, that's strange. Well, what I would, yeah, what I'd like to ask you is like, you clearly have studied it, like I said, a broad range of different topics and you have, you're, t- you're looking at the system from like a macro level, but what of like a, a really, I wouldn't say traditional, but like old school capitalist, someone who is looking to maximize their profitability. If I'm a short-term oriented person, I want to make X amount of money in the next couple of years. Why should I invest in more like social impact projects if I could speculate on making money from something else in the short term? Sure. Well, I want to I want to just talk about what social impact means, because I think that's important. Um, And again, this is like sustainability. It means different things to different people. Uh, I think everything we do is social impact. (laughs) The question is whether it's positive or negative. And uh, just like environmental impact, everything we do has an environmental consequence positive or negative. I mean, that's just the butterfly effect, right? Um, The question is whether we can measure that impact. And I think that's where people struggle today. Uh, People in general, policymakers, certainly business people struggle with, how do we measure it? How do I know that this solution is doing what it's supposed to do? Now, I have a lot of friends and colleagues that that I really love and respect um, that, you know, sort of rail against the capitalist system. I'm not one of them. I think capitalism is, is, is simply a, a, it's a process. It's, it's not about wealth. Wealth and capital are two different things uh, because capital includes human capital. Uh, it includes natural capital. It includes things that we own as a society. And I don't mean own as in I have a deed to it. It means own, meaning it's ours. Like we're the ones that use it. Um, Air is, is a form of natural capital. Water is a form of natural capital. Human labor is a form of, of you know, human capital. So capitalism is just how do we organize all of the inputs, right? And then what comes out of it is hopefully prosperity, however you define that, um, and wealth, however you define that, because wealth isn't just about you know, money, although for a lot of people, money is the end result of wealth measurement. Um, money is really just a tool of measurement. Like money is just how do we, how do we all use the same math, if you will? And, and so I think if you can uh, speak to people in business uh, about what's important to them and how they measure success, you're going to get more interest, number one, and, and you're going to get more investment, number two, which is really important. So investment is what's key, not capital or, or wealth. Or Investment is the will. That's what we need. Investment is the will. And, and you know, sort of an old school real estate uh, term is skin in the game, right? You have to have skin in the game. And you have skin in the game, meaning you've made an investment. Then you pay attention. And so you've got to get business people and investors to put skin in the game, make that happen in a way where they are both aligned with the outcome and committed to the outcome. And I think this is where we still struggle. It's easy to be aligned with a social mission or an environmental mission. You can say, I love trees. I'm going to save trees. That's great. You're aligned. 
but are you committed to that? Are you really committed to that? Meaning, do you have skin in the game or do you just want somebody else to put skin in the game? And that's the difference, right? I love public-private social partnerships because everybody, true partnerships, because everybody has skin in the game. Everybody is committed. And so let me give you a real life example. I um, work with and advise a company called Ion Energy Solutions. Um, they are a national provider of smart water data. And what I mean by that is they work with primarily in the uh, affordable, meaning rent regulated, multifamily apartment building rental space. Um, people in that industry would call it HUD or, or low income housing tax credit properties, things like that, of which we have, you know, tens of millions, of, hundreds of millions of, of units around the country. And it's a growing industry. And what's unique about that industry is in many cases, in fact, in most cases, because of regulation, the owner, the landlord pays for water. They, they may not pay for energy, but they do pay for water, meaning the individual resident in the individual unit may pay for their own electrical and gas consumption. And so it's metered and they pay the bill and they can see it. But water is different. In most buildings, water is master metered and the landlord pays for that. So the tenant has no idea how much water they actually use or waste. What ION does is ION has a proprietary, wonderful technology that um, takes uh, very micro level data from individual meters, uh, wireless meters that are placed in apartment units, sometimes in, in the entire unit, sometimes on individual plumbing appliances or fixtures like toilets, the number one problem is toilets. And it actually measures it in real time. And then that data goes up into the cloud to an analytics platform and it comes back to the owner uh, as, um, as, as gallons, Duration of pro duration of the problem and and time like did it did it uh, when did it happen how long did it last how many times did it go you know throughout a twenty four hour period and every day they get a essentially a report that says here are your top five leaks and a leak doesn't mean there's water on the floor a leak means a toilet flapper is wide open and it's running into the drain we don't build buildings to be smart. But this enables an owner, a property manager to actually know, hey, I have a problem at this unit or at this building or in this toilet or this water heater, I should go fix it. Because guess what? Cost it's money. costing me money. It also happens to be wasting a very valuable resource. And so alignment, <laughs> money and resources, commitment, I should stop that from leaking because I'm having to pay this water bill. Makes sense to me. I, I like the and way so, you think, man. Yeah. And so they're doing something that's green, but that's not why they're doing it. They're mm -hmm. motivated by something else. Yeah. We it also, it also happens to make the asset more valuable, believe it or not, because it's been proven in real estate that a well-performing building, a, a building that, performs well, meaning its mechanical systems perform well, and it does. It has lower maintenance costs. Uh, it has lower what we call OPEX, uh, operating capital requirements. And so 
when you value the asset, you know, you go and you look at what does it cost to operate this thing? And that has a direct impact on the value of that asset in the marketplace. And so we have developers that we work with at, at ION that have literally seen millions of dollars of new asset value accrue to them when they sell a building because they have this wonderful system installed and it actively manages and monitors the problem. Well, it's almost the strangest thing. If you build products and services that are better and more efficient, they're worth more money. Who would have thought? <laughs> Who would have thought? And, and so, you know, back to your original question, why, how, how do you get people aligned with social or environmental missions? Show them why it's in their best interest to do so. Like, it's nice to say I'm doing this for the planet. That's a nice slogan. Or I'm doing it for mankind, like humankind, I should say. But, you know, at the end of the day, you're doing it for yourself. And I don't have a problem with that as long as you do it, as long as you execute. Yeah, I definitely would love to learn more and more. I, I love talking to Ryan a couple of weeks ago from ICAST talking about doing all these retrofits to make buildings more efficient. Um, it's a huge room, room for improvement. I'm sure you're well aware of that. Uh, yeah, so I kind of want to talk into your, your most recent biggest project, which is the the partnership with food service partners to develop their right. new sustainable food production center. And how is that um, kind of aligning with those values that we're talking about, be it building efficiency, providing value to the community, uh, using capital effectively? I think that kind of is all involved in that project that you're working on or have just recently finished. I'm not 100% sure. Yeah, recent, recently completed it uh, and it's it's up and running. And um, so... Um, uh, in a in a former job, I was working at a national nonprofit, helping them kind of build some of these these programs that I've described these these execution programs and partnerships. Uh, I met food service partners. Um, they're actually a national company. They're they're based here uh, near near me in Maryland, actually. Although I met them in California, uh, ironically, which is their largest operation at the time, and they've been in business for over twenty years. Um, they started essentially uh, as a spinoff from a from a predecessor company that uh, provided all of the patient meals for a very large hospital chain in California, Kaiser Permanente, and uh, they were providing all of the Northern California patient meals. Kaiser didn't have kitchens in their in their individual acute care hospitals; they had a central commissary. And food service partners took over this business from their predecessor company and, and grew it from there. So they've been in business uh, with Kaiser doing this for over 20 years. They've expanded to other kitchens around the country and they kind of do the same thing in New York and, and uh, Virginia. And they opened a new facility in Georgia recently and Texas. And they work with a lot of institutional food providers, senior schools, hospitals, you know, um, as well as co-packing for, for retail customers. They also have a mission, although it's not, not a social mission, it's a mission, a corporate mission that they treat their employees with dignity and they pay them living wages and they provide benefits. And, you know, it's a small company. It's been family owned and operated for a long time. Um, but they do it because it's the right thing to do, not because anybody told them to do it. Um, although they certainly want to cooperate with, you know, Customers like Kaiser, for example, that has a 100% sustainable sourcing of their food policy, 
Who is Kaiser? Uh, and S- Kaiser, Kaiser Permanente. Yes. Uh, who is that? What do they, they do? They're one of the largest uh, nonprofit hospital and okay. healthcare providers in the country. Uh, they're mostly in California. Um, they do have some on the East Coast. They're a little bit in, in Colorado now, and uh, I believe in Hawaii and Washington State. Uh, but they uh, they have 24 or five acute care hospitals in Northern California alone, and, and another 20 something in Southern California. Um, they have. Uh, I think close to 3 million subscribers. And they're interesting because they're both a healthcare provider, meaning they run hospitals and they have their sort of the original HMO, um, but they're also an insurer. And so skin in the game, right? As an insurer, they want to pay, pay, you know, pay less. As a healthcare provider, they want to see quality health. And they've recognized food as health for a long time. You know, food is really important to human health. Definitely. Um, and so they they adopted this 100% sustainable local food policy and food service partners as their patient meal provider in Northern California is obviously part of that solution. The problem is, of course, that food service partners was in an antiquated facility, uh, too small to really support the growth uh, of both of Kaiser and other uh, customers that they have. They're also in a marketplace where, where the rent that they were paying was going to escalate probably two or three times what they had been paying historically because they were competing with biotech firms in the Bay Area. And so- For, for space? Became, like for, for space, yes. Yeah. They were essentially going to get kicked out because a biotech company outbid them on the rent um, for, for the building they were in. And so they're like, well, what do we do? You know, we need a new facility. It needs to be bigger. We can only afford to pay so much. Uh, and, you know, what do we do? Um, on top of that, they really needed to be in that location because Kaiser, their biggest customer in California, wanted them to be in that location. They couldn't move somewhere else. Um, so you're competing in this, essentially, this overheated industrial real estate market in the greater Bay Area. Um, they, they care about their employees and they don't want to have their employees spend you know, two hours driving every day to get to, to work. So they wanted to you know, kind of stay in the general vicinity because they've got employees that have been with them forever. Um, Kaiser sort of wants certain things with community impact. Um, California recently adopted and implemented uh, new curbs. Uh, I use with a U, C-U-R-B, through what's called CARB, which is the California Air Resources Board, uh, which basically limits the use of hydrofluorocarbons in refrigeration, otherwise known as Freon. So commercial refrigeration now, you know, you can grandfather in certain systems, but eventually over the next couple of years, these HFC-based refrigerants, meaning Freon, are going to get phased out. And those are the things that put the hole in the ozone layer, right? They, they do, but they also cause a lot of other pollutants. And so um, they're basically, California is pushing toward what are called natural refrigerants. Um, and of course, the manufacturers of the equipment are eyeballing this and thinking, oh, you know, here's a business opportunity to kind of refurbish a lot of facilities. 
Um, we also need a lot more cold chain in this country. Um, foods, the food safety laws have really ratcheted up in the past couple of years. And so sort of this, it's like this field to fork monitoring uh, is now required for food. Um, that's simply for, for tracking and food safety. And things have to be in cold chain all the way and you have to document it. So you, you kind of have to have smart cold chain buildings now. Um, so all of these things are coming together and I was trying to advise, help out with financing, things like that, but it became apparent that someone needed to step in and develop a new facility for food service partners. They're an operator, not a developer. And they needed it ASAP, uh, cause they were going to lose their lease. And so we sort of started down that road, finding a building, trying to put financing together. And then guess what happened in January of 2020, right as we were about to close on an acquisition of a building, COVID. I might've heard of this one. Might've heard of this one. <laughs> and so deer in the headlights, right? What do we do? We have to move forward. How do we do this? This is interesting. And we did. Um, we just, we, we, we stuck, you know, put our head down and plowed through it. Uh, in the middle of a pandemic, we had COVID protocols. Uh, we closed on the building literally on Friday, March 13th, Jeez, 2020. That's brutal. The day before it shut down, yeah. I was driving, I was driving around the Bay Area trying to get documents signed. Yeah. Um, and started construction. And uh, it, it went longer than we thought, and it cost more money than we hoped, uh, but we got it done. Uh, we acquired a building, gutted it. Uh, and put in a state-of-the-art refrigeration system that it uses a natural refrigerant, in this case, carbon dioxide, that terrible greenhouse gas CO2 can be recaptured and used as a refrigerant. Can you explain uh, the been, kind of the details of that a little bit? I can, and know it's been done successfully. It's a, a fairly old technology that's been done successfully in Europe, Northern Europe and Canada for many years. It works particularly well in temperate and cooler climates. Um, although the technology is getting better in warmer and humid, humid climates as well. Um, but it's essentially carbon dioxide in a pressurized system. Um, I'm not an engineer, but basically CO2 pressurized is a wonderful um, heat exchange fluid, right? It, it, it's a phase change. It goes from liquid to gaseous, you know, at certain temperatures, it's very reliable. Um, and, and it's a great way to operate refrigeration systems. Um, unlike Freon, which you know, doesn't need to be pressurized, but if it leaks, it's terrible. Uh, CO2, if it leaks uh, in this kind of a setting, not in a closed building where obviously carbon dioxide could, could cause respiratory problems, but if it leaks into the atmosphere, it's benign. If you think about it, if I have a thousand pounds of carbon dioxide in my refrigeration system and that thousand pound leaks. I repair the system and pump that thousand pounds back into my system. Mm. It's literally net zero. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's just recycling the CO2 in the environment back into the refrigeration system. So we're not emitting any greenhouse gases that we're not capturing and, and using for the refrigeration itself. How does it the is, pressurization is, work? Uh, well, the, the, it's like any refrigeration system, um, you know, 
uh, when a gas cools or heats, right? It either condenses or expands. And so um, the physical properties of carbon dioxide are such that you've got to compress it a lot more. And when it compresses through, through pressure in the system, uh, you know, it has better heat uh, retention qualities, better, better thermal properties. And so we have a lot of advanced equipment in the building, obviously, but the backbone of it is a very cool system uh, that was designed and provided, built by um, Heatcraft, which is an American-based company. Um, they, uh, I think, did a wonderful job of, of creating what was a pretty unique system in, in what I call a multi-temp building. Meaning every room has slightly different temperatures. We have freezers, we have refrigerators, we have coolers, we have hot prep, we have cold prep. This kind of technology has been used in large grocery warehouses where you have a single temp. Everything's gotta be 32 degrees. In our building, our, our refrigerated temperatures go from 50 all the way to minus 10. Hmm. <laughs> so pretty advanced engineering went into this, but it's, it's the way of the future. Um, let me just pause and say yeah, that. Yeah, how so? Well, let me just pause and say there was another option, and that was to use what's called ammonia or hybrid ammonia systems, which have been used very successfully in the food industry, uh, particularly in big warehouses for many, many years. The problem with ammonia systems is if there is a leak, there is a public health threat. Uh, ammonia is very toxic to humans, uh, which is why you're not supposed to use ammonia-based cleaners or solvents in your bathroom or kitchen, right? Because of the fumes. And uh, it's also very explosive. So we have a fire hazard and a toxicity problem. And our plant, the plant we built for food service partners is in an urban area. There are neighborhoods and schools near us. We're an industrial park, but you know, we still have people living there. And so we couldn't do that. We couldn't introduce that kind of a hazard. In fact, the, the town where we're located, basically the first question they asked us when we went in to talk about permitting is, you're not, they, they basically said, you're not considering ammonia, are you? Uh, the fire marshal was there, was relieved when we said, no, we're not. Um, we're going to do a CO2 system. But that presented a learning curve because they'd never seen one before. And so we had to help educate them with engineering and, and eventually we got through it. But they were very relieved we weren't going to do something that could potentially threaten um, the local community uh, with toxicity and, and fire hazards. So this is just a sort of a long way of saying we have this amazing opportunity to create a local food chain, not one that relies on law, you know, gigantic acre sized warehouses in the middle of nowhere. We've got to have local food production and local food storage in our communities, much smaller buildings, much different economics. They also can't be a threat. They can't be a fire threat. They can't be a toxicity threat. And they have to be, uh, you know, adaptable to new requirements on, on climate uh, issues and, and emission issues like California has adopted um, with their rollback of HFCs. Um, it also happens to be incredibly energy efficient. One of the beauties of 
the CO2 system, it, it, unlike freon-based systems in refrigeration, is it has an immense heat recapture opportunity. And so when our plant is operating at its optimal level, meaning the ideal environmental circumstances in terms of outdoor temperature and things like that, um, 100% of the hot water, 100% of the hot water requirements of this food production center. And you can imagine it has a lot of hot water needs. Um, 100% of that can be provided through the heat reclaim on the refrigeration system. Wow. <laughs> In which case, we're just he recapturing heat from the refrigeration, which is the phase change of pressurized CO2 to non-pressurized, right? Liquid to gas. Pump that into a holding tank. And that provides 100% of the hot water. Again, at optimal times, it's never optimal because, you know, Temperatures change all the time outside. We have different weather events and seasons, but we are projecting that somewhere between 40 and 70% of the thermal heat requirements for hot water will be provided over time by the refrigeration system, which means we don't have to use electricity or natural gas as much to, to, uh, to heat that hot water. And then as an extra bonus, we bought a building that had a fairly new solar rooftop solar installation. We did some rehabilitation to it. And so we've got this great natural refrigeration CO2 system that's not hazardous, uh, doesn't contribute to, to climate change impacts, uh, is very energy efficient on top of that. And it has 260 kilowatts of solar generation on the roof. And so somewhere between 20 and 30% of the load, the energy load of this building will be provided on site. Again, it's not net to zero, like, you know, policymakers want, oh, we've got to have net zero buildings. Like, but it's a whole lot better than what we, are, what we previously had. And the next time I build one of these or someone else builds one of these buildings, they're going to make it slightly better. And then slightly yep. better after that. And eventually we will evolve into having large-scale industrial food and other, you know, cold chain buildings. Cold chain is important to the pharmaceutical industry, as we've learned. It's important to the food industry. Uh, cold chain is very, very important. Um, so we can have these plants that uh, are local, that are sustainable, uh, that, that employ local people, local contractors. Um, that keep our food chain and our, our, uh, our, our medical system running, even when we have climate impacts around the world, uh, and are also incredibly energy efficient. Um, it's kind of a win-win-win, and that's why I did it. Um, I got excited about it, and I'd like to do more of it, but I'll tell you, trying to build a building like this in a pandemic. You did it, though. <laughs> With a, with a tenant that is getting kicked out of their building any second, uh, you know, very, very difficult. And I, I wouldn't recommend anybody undertake this. <laughs> well, hopefully we don't have any more, more pandemics coming up any soon. And thank you so much for sharing all the details about that because it, it is very interesting stuff. And yeah, I guess the, the, the follow-up I would say is that 
it, there was an obvious, I mean, obviously you did it during the pandemic. There was an obvious necessity for this company in particular to do this. But what we'd really like to see or what we really need to see is large scale adoptions of this type of technology or retrofits right. or modifications of new buildings all over the place. Like how can Correct. we get people to do that now if they don't have yes. a direct incentive? Like we got to move. Like we, we need, sure. we'd like to see some way to make that happen more, more commonly. Sure. Well, I, it's, it's kind of, that's the, you know, that's the hundred million dollar question. You know, everybody talks about how do we do this? How do we scale it up? And uh, obviously, you know, I'm not going to say incentives aren't important. They are important. And that's where policy really does play a role. Um, But, you know, we are sort of at a natural uh, uh, pivot point in, in the built environment, uh, particularly in the United States. Um, You know, if you think about telecommunications, um, you know, we we built in the U.S., we built a system based on wires. And so it was very, very difficult to abandon that. And interestingly interestingly enough, our our telecommunications system started, you know, really as as wired technology for telegraphs built along railroad lines (laughs) as we, you know, kind of expanded the railroads we built telephone wires. Um, and so the telephone companies, Ma Bell, we used to call them, right? Uh, they were regulated industries and, and they owned that uh, franchise and they didn't want to give it up. Um, cellular technology enabled uh, societies, countries around the country that didn't have that wired infrastructure to leapfrog us. Uh, you go to places like India and China and Indonesia and parts of Africa and South America. And they've been working with wireless forever. They do everything wirelessly. And we're just catching up with the wireless technology in this country, again, because we were wedded to wire. We still are wedded to wire in many cases. Um, People fear cutting wires. Uh, But if you never had a wire, you didn't know the difference. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we're going um, with with green buildings and you know sustainable food systems and, and things like that is we are relearning. Part of that is generational. We've got a wonderful, you know, youthful, energetic part of our population now that says we don't know what dial-up was. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I grew up before the internet, so I can laugh about it, but um, you know, my kids, uh, you know, in their, in their late teens and, and 20, early twenties, like that, we didn't know what that was. And so they're very conversant in the new technology. And so we're getting young people with fresh minds and fresh ideas coming and saying, yeah, no, we're not wedded to those old ways. Let's do it a new way. That's number one. That's driving change. Number two is money. Um, we have all the money we will ever need. It's floating around. In fact, it's a problem because we have too much money, not it's too little. Printed. Money. Yeah, we have too much money in the system floating around looking for a place to go. And so what I do, really, my, my principal job, I think, is to try to uh, matchmake, uh, not in a brokerage sense, but in an in a, in a execution sense. How do I get uh, capital, you know, whether that's uh, money or knowledge or labor, uh, aligned 
and committed to businesses that need it uh, and vice versa. Uh, and that's what I did with food service partners. It's what I'm doing with a couple other companies, including Ion Energy Solutions, is bridging those gaps. Um, so we've used uh, commercial pace, uh, property assessed clean energy financing. Uh, we've used um, social impact uh, lending uh, with some specialty lenders. Uh, we brought in some equity partners that have specialized equity funds focused on the green built environment and, and uh, sustainable food and sustainable water. Um, so it's really about finding the parties out there and putting them together in a way that makes sense, that produces both the alignment and the commitment. Uh, and sometimes you have to step in and kind of be the developer like I, I did in, in the case of the, the food plant. Sometimes you, it can be purely transactional, um, but that has to happen more and more and more and scale up. Um, at the end of the day, we need better data. Uh, we have tons of data out there, but we need better data, meaning we need information that is accessible and it's digestible. Um, Ion, the, the water data company, they, they produce a product, a service, if you will, that allows building owners to monitor the water performance of their buildings in real time. Yeah. You can't get that from a municipal water meter. A municipal water meter doesn't work that way. It's out in the street, it only reads flow one way, it doesn't tell you what's happening inside your building and you only get the bill once a month at most and it's looking backwards 30 days. If you had a leak, it's already occurred and it's probably thousands and thousands of dollars of, of waste. So again, it's like that, that wired technology. We're wedded to this idea of there's a municipal water meter that, but maybe there's a better way to do it. There's always a better way. And so bringing that technology to bear in real life examples where, you know, real estate owners can see, hey, I could actually operate a better building here and make more money, but also serve a higher public purpose. Hey, I could have a cold chain building that actually uses less energy and the less energy it uses, the more that tenant's willing to pay in rent, which goes into my pocket, not to the utilities pocket. People start to go, oh, okay, I now see what's in it for me. How do I do this? And that's where I come in. I'm the, I'm the how do you do this? And I kind of bring the, hey, I've got you know, these equity partners and I've got these debt partners and there's this creative financing that we can kind of bundle together and you can be off and running. Um, so again, it's, it's taking the tools that already exist and putting them together in a way that actually solves a problem that could be replicated. Um, I like to, to operate under the assumption that 80% of the solution already exists. I agree. And, and 20% is localized. Hmm. Well, thanks for sharing today, man. I really appreciate it. Uh, what are the biggest takeaways from your career so far in thinking about all this stuff? And what do you advice did you have for someone who's young and coming up in this 
opportunity. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a lot. I, I see these crises as an opportunity. That's the way I see it as an entrepreneur. So yeah, what advice do you have for, for the young folks coming up now? And what are the biggest takeaways from your experience so far? Um, boy, that's a, it's a great question. I, I find myself trying to answer this for my, my sons all the time. Exactly. Um, you, you know, um, I agree with you, Ethan. Uh, we have never had more opportunity. Um, technology evolves so rapidly now. Um, that if you're not paying attention, it passes you by. What's a wire? Uh, and, it, and, and, it, and that's a good thing and it's a bad thing. Um, I mean, I, you know, if I look back on my own path, my, my own uh, development, if you will, um, uh, the things that, that, uh, that, that I am most proud of uh, and I think that have been most useful to me personally is get a very broad education. Um, it's fine to be an engineer. It's fine to go to business school. Those are great. But if you really want to be entrepreneurial and you really want to be opportunistic uh, in, in the sense of both kind of personal success and, and contributing to social or environmental solutions along the way, um, you've got to be open to other things. Um, it's, it's really about what you do with the knowledge, not the knowledge itself. Um, knowledge is just a tool. Um, so number one, you know, educate on as many things as possible. Uh, um, my, uh, my youngest son, uh, who is, is a freshman in college right now, has shown uh, a lot of interest in, in, in writing and in, in creative writing specifically. And I am uh, just a, a huge supporter of that. Um, one of the things that I think we've lost um, with uh, certain technologies uh, that shorten our communications to a certain number of words <laughs> or letters in, in some right. cases is that we've lost the ability to communicate effectively. Um, Solutions can't be tweeted. Um, solutions require explanation. They re it requires insight. It requires one-on-one uh, -on -one human interaction. And writing uh, also means you, you know not only if you're if you're writing effectively, you're communicating effectively, but it also means you're thinking very effectively because the way the human brain works is. You know, writing is our expression of our thoughts. And so if you can write it down, that means you can think about it. You can process it. You can analyze it. You can be creative. I like to be creative. Innovation, I think, is an overused term, but creativity is about how do I take all these things and put it together in the right way? So focus, focus on on kind of building those capacities uh, in, in your education and your experience. Do, do many jobs, right? Uh, I've, I've bounced around a lot. People used to say, you know, don't do that. Don't bounce around. It looks bad on your resume. I encourage it. Um, again, it's not how long you were at a job. It's what you learned in that job and how you take that knowledge and apply it toward what you want to do in the future. Um, it's, it's building not only just building a resume, it's, it's building your experience. Um, so I think that's really important. 
Um, just be open to different ideas. Um, there's no one idea that's going to solve all of our problems. There are so many wonderful ideas out there. Uh, there are also a lot of terrible ideas out there. Um, but all ideas are good in the sense that it makes us think. It makes us think about what we really want, what we want personally, what we want for our communities, for our families, um, for civilization, you know, in general. So, you know, those are all, I think, all things that everybody can do. Read, Re be a voracious reader. I don't care what you read. I don't care how you read it, but read a lot from different sources. Um, you don't have to read everything every day, uh, but, you know, read it, think about it, um, try to understand it. Um, we have these wonderful computers in our heads uh, where, where we've, we've been given this wonderful gift from nature um, that kind of distinguishes us from any other species on the planet. We just need to use them uh, and we need to be patient and, and respectful. Um, again, I'm going to get back to what I opened with. Um, a consultant walks into a room to make a presentation and the, the audience is evenly split between Democrats, Republicans, and independents. And the consultant says, well, you know, let's break some ice. Quick show of hands. Does anybody not want clean air to breathe or clean water to drink? No hands go up. Great. We've now agreed on two things. Let's get to work. Kevin, man, I like where your head's at, but I love where your heart's at. So thanks so much for joining Thank me today. Too. It's been it's been a real joy. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, I love what you're doing. And, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a small guy kind of doing this as a passion. So I really appreciate the opportunity to have a broader audience. True honor. I hope everybody enjoyed and we'll see you soon. Take care. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Changing the Climate. Here at Climate Change Realty, we don't just donate 50% of our net commissions to fight climate change. We also donate a full 50% of our real estate referrals. So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrboulder.com today.